I want to start with a quiz. This is just a, a thought quiz. You're not going to be graded, Trey, so don't worry about it. Um, but uh, just to kind of put you in the biblical context of what we're going to see, which one of these prophets or apostles, according to Scripture, healed at least one blind person? And I'm talking Moses, Elijah, his protege, Elisha, Peter, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John? Okay, look at those and kind of come up with your answer. And then let me tell you this. Of all the prophets, priests, kings, and apostles recorded in Scripture, the only person to heal blindness was the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? I mean, some of those prophets raised the dead, but nobody in Scripture ever healed a blind person except Jesus Christ. And when you look at the 35 specific miracles, now there's some general description about Jesus healing many people here and many people there, but when you look at the, Julie, the 35 specific miracle accounts in the four Gospels, the single most common medical miracle, uh, Ryan, that Jesus did was not... Uh, Healing the lame, it was not walking on the water, it was not uh, turning water into wine, it was not multiplying small meals to heal crowds, uh, it was not resuscitating the dead. The single most common miracle by Jesus was giving sight to the blind. And nobody else in Scripture does that. Matthew 9, Matthew 12, Matthew 15, Matthew 21, Mark 8, Mark 10, Luke 7, and our passage here. And I say this is an especially significant sign miracle because the rabbis who came up with the oral law, the commentary on the scripture, that often went way far afield from God's intent. The rabbis of Jesus' day taught that when the Messiah came, Jack, he would heal the blind because nobody else had done that or could do that. So in that sense... Uh, this is an especially important sign miracle. Signs a pointer that validates Jesus' claims about himself. And among other things, we're going to learn that as horrible as physical blindness is for anyone, spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness is much, much worse. Okay? So let's, uh, let's pray for teachability, our troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And those are the men that died just a few weeks ago in Baton Rouge, peace officers. Uh, those are some of our, our guys in uniform that we know, directly or indirectly. And uh, Mike's been out of town for, for a little bit, so we're going to put you right back to work. Would you uh, pray for us in that direction, please, sir? Yeah, thank you. Uh, we've got a mind-blowing miracle today. But talking about mind-blowing things, a uh, journalism professor gave her class a very unique assignment. She said... Uh, before next time, I want you to come up with a three-word headline that would shock the world. And so uh, the students thought, that sounds like a fun fun assignment, so let's give it a shot. So the next class period, uh, three of the students shared their, their headlines. First one was, Queen Elizabeth resigns. And the teacher said, yeah, that's a pretty cushy job. You know, if she, uh, she's getting up there, but that would probably shock the world, yeah. Number two, Bob Stoops fired. That shocked the world. I mean, he's been a pretty successful coach, you know. 
But the uh, the third one really took the cake because the student stood up and uh, read his three-word headline. It said, the Pope elopes. <laughs> so that, that would have been pretty pretty shaking or shaking, yeah. Um, yeah, we're working through the seven sign miracles of the Gospel of John. Uh, as the purpose statement of the book says, many other signs Jesus also performed that are not written in this book. So Phyllis, he's saying, I'm not trying to tell you everything I saw or everything I could tell you. He's being selective. But he says, but these, the, the signs I'm including, have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you'd have life in his name. Uh, when asked, what must I do to be saved? The Apostle Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, Jesus said, uh, you want to do the works of God? Here's the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. And John 3.16, which I think is a really nice passage to go to to summarize a lot of scriptural truth. God the Father as the author, the architect of the plan of salvation, loved the world so much he gave his son. What did he do? What did his son do? took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. He's the God-man Savior, lived a perfect righteous life. You might say he obeyed the law for us, died as a substitute for our sin penalty and paid our moral, metaphysical, spiritual debt. And he rose again from the dead. And leading up to that, he's doing saying things and doing things nobody else could ever do, including these kind of signs. And we're going to look at uh, the seventh or the sixth sign Today And even though next week, Lord willing, we're going to see the seventh sign is the raising of a dead man, a guy who's been biologically dead, not just clinically dead. You can die clinically for a few minutes and sometimes a little longer and be uh, revived. The soul doesn't leave the body quite yet. But when you're dead for four days, you're what they call, it's a medical term, you're graveyard dead. Okay, And so we're going to see Jesus literally supernaturally resuscitate Lazarus after he's been dead for four days. And so for me, as a 21st century Western thinker, that's the penultimate miracle. But in many ways, I think for the Jewish mindset in the first century, they've been told, their rabbis had looked at the data, and the rabbis weren't always wrong, and the preachers aren't always wrong, said the Messiah will do something nobody's ever done. He's going to heal the blind. And this is one in John 9, one of many cases where Jesus heals the blind man, right? And, uh, yeah, I just realized that when you look at the book of John, he's specifically organizing this to make the point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that uh, through faith in him we can have eternal life. Now, the passage today is 41 verses, quite a few verses, breaks down into two pieces, a little half and a big half, as my sister used to say. We're going to see the sign, the miracle itself, in the first seven verses. Then we'll see the significance of the sign in verses 8 through 41. Uh, but first, let's look at, in fact, let's read the first part of that. Look at verses 1 through 5, and I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard Bible. You may have a different one, and that's perfectly fine. Look at verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is the only blind from birth person, specifically earmarked, that Jesus heals from blindness. Some of the other ones aren't, we're not told if they're blind from birth or not, but for sure this guy had never ever seen anything with his physical eyes. And his disciples, just curious about, not, not how can we help this guy, but theologically, they're, they're starting to think like theologians, okay, Kyleen, so they're saying, hey, what's the deal here? Who sinned here? I mean, the same rabbis 
who correctly said the Messiah would heal blindness, incorrectly taught that basically all physical suffering is directly connected to physical sin. The reason you get a cold or the reason you break an ankle or the reason you get cancer or the reason you get in a car wreck is because you've done something wrong. And, and God just honor, you know, uh, lines up the scores real quick like that. Now the scripture says it's a lot compli- more complicated than that. But they're just curious, kind of morbid curiosity, Scott. They see this poor pitiful guy, uh, well known, he's a beggar in town, blind from birth, and they said, who sinned here, Lord? And the rabbis actually said you could sin in utero, and that explained birth defects. No, that doesn't, it's, it's more complicated than that. It's a, it's a tough subject. Uh, it also, they also were teaching that uh, if parents, especially the mom, it's always the mom's fault, right? If the mom sins while you're carrying a baby, that sin could be worked out in some kind of birth defect. Here's its congenital blindness. Jesus answered, it's neither that this man sinned in utero nor his parents while he was uh, being developed in the mom's womb, but it was so, it was permitted that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, basically, the book of Job deals with that and says, you know what, there is no simple answer. You know, people want to know the will of God, and that's cool, but the will of God is really complicated at that level. There are trillions and trillions and trillions of pieces in the puzzle, and he sees how the Rubik's Cube of cosmic reality fits, and we don't have the capacity to. So we're going to have to trust that he does and go with what we do know about him, even in the uh, difficult times of life. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, We must work the works of him, God the Father, the sender, Jesus is the sendee, architect, active agent, uh, who sent me as long as it is day. Night's coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Go back to verse 1. As he passed by. Now, based on the context here in John, this is happening sometime between September and December of 32 A.D., and the Lord will be crucified in April of 33. So we're getting kind of toward the end of the ministry. Uh, and again, the apostles ask a question. They could care less about helping this guy. And they've, they've been sent on healing tours, okay, prior. So they've been able to see God supernaturally help people. But they're not worried about him. They see so many people in need. They figured out a long time ago they can't help everybody. But they're curious about the theology behind this. And Jesus says, you know, your premise is wrong. You're making a category mistake. God's uh, design is a lot bigger than what you're thinking. Dr. Tom Constable at soniclight.com says this about that. It is biblically incorrect and spiritually slash psychologically unhealthy to assume that every instance of personal suffering is directly related to a particular act of personal sin. It's also incorrect and unhealthy to assume that God permits every instance of suffering because he intends to supernaturally heal it. I can remember the first time, or one of the first times, that we dealt with a blind man being healed in the Gospel of Matthew. When that uh, We were going through the Gospel of Matthew, and it took like, what, five years for me to go through the Gospel of Matthew, longer than the events themselves. Uh, I'm looking at our congregation, and roughly maybe a row ahead of where time is, I'm looking at Bill Shelton. Now, what's my problem? Bill Shelton was blind. Now, he wasn't born blind. He lost one eye in World War II because of a machine gun bullet when he was shot down out of a B-17. And then he got a virus in his eye in the POW camp that caused him to slowly lose his sight in his other eye over the next several decades. And you're thinking, you know what? It'd be easy for 
build a kind of being pity palace. He could say, why is Jesus healing all these blind people? And it's a handful, but it's a significant number, okay, to repeat the experiment, as it were. But he never he never felt like that. You know, beware of comparing yourself to everybody else, because you can really make yourself feel sorry for yourself. But Constable goes on to say, uh, Jesus was talking here about this particular man's case when he said, hey, uh, you know, in effect, it wasn't his parents or him, and that's not the way it works at all, but it was so that the works of God, by my healing him here, would be displayed. And think about it, Nicole. You know, 2,000 years later, we're talking about that event here in a little old place called Duncan, Oklahoma. So, yeah, the works of God have been mightily displayed through that healing, but it's not always God's will to heal every hurt. In fact, I'm convinced there are some hurts that you're going to experience on earth that can't be healed this side of heaven. That's why you can't take heaven out of the equation of reality and understand reality. I know skeptics don't like that, but unless you accept metaphysical and physical reality and now and eternity, you don't have any chance to make stuff to make sense. But we've got an eternal God who's promised us it's going to make sense and we're going to be perfectly okay with the trials now when we see it from the other side. I'll give you an illustration of what that means a little bit later. But yeah, so we got this prologue, kind of theological, on-the-job training. And here's just a practical bottom line that as I've studied the scripture pretty intently for a long time, I think you got to get to the point, and this is part of building your battleship before the hurricane hits you, you got to convince yourself. This is true whether you believe it or not, Christian. But if you're a born-again believer in Jesus, you dare to trust him for eternal life, you got to realize you're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God. So, Brad, since you say that all the time, you never second-guess God. Yeah, I do. I mean, that's my default position on a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. You know, you you, uh, you kind of wonder what's going on. But the analogy I've used, and I didn't make this up, but I think it's the first time I've ever seen anybody use PowerPoint <laughs> to, to, to show it, is this. Some of you have seen this, some of you haven't. But if I were to show you this and try to convince you it was a masterpiece, you might say, well, I'm in, very much into modern art, right? Uh, but that, that doesn't look like a masterpiece. There, there's no pattern there. There's an empty spot there, empty spot there, all, all these you know, loose threads and everything. And you might say, uh, how dare you call that a masterpiece? You know, I've, I've been to the Louvre. I've seen some real paintings and stuff. Well, that, Dale, is actually that. Okay? This is the tapestry from the earthly side. This is the tapestry of life, as it were. From God's side, as God looks at the tapestry of history, including the worst thing you've done or the worst thing that's happened to you last week, and it may get worse this week, <laughs> he sees that, and he's happy with it, which is why he kind of tells us, when you're down in the dumps, you got to doubt your doubts. Now, what do we see on July 24th, when we looked at Psalm 11, when the world's falling apart around you, you got to uh, punt panic and positively persevere. You know, if you're trusting him for eternity, you're going to have to trust him in time for this to make sense. Now notice in verse 5, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now we're looking at the seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John, right, Scott? But several years ago, we did a series on the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Okay, uh, John liked the number seven. Okay. Somebody told me that was a lucky number. My lucky number is 16. Okay, I was born on March 16th. My wife was born on December 16th. 
my first son was born on June 16th, and my uh, second son was born on February 16th. No, he was born on February 26th, so he messed up the whole pattern, okay? But, uh, yeah, in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven specific audacious statements that if you analyze them theologically are claiming that he's, the, he's God in flesh, that he's the Savior, he's the only way to heaven. You know, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You notice we've got definite articles in all of these. It's not, I am a bread of life. I am a way. I am the, 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 the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine. So that's pretty neat to know. We don't have time to go into detail about that, but that's a pretty cool study too. Now, go back to boom, uh, verses 6 and 7. We see first the theological on-the-job training, as it were, and now look at 6 and 7. After he had tried to clarify this for the disciples, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied clay to his eyes. Now, I think you get sued for medical malpractice nowadays doing stuff like that, right? Um, and said to him, to the blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Uh, by the way, uh, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me. There's probably a connection between sending him to the pool. There are several pools in Jerusalem that the guy could have gone to. But we're in Jerusalem between September and December 32, Jesus spits in the dirt, makes some clay, puts it on the guy's eyes. The guy can't see, so if nothing else, he's getting some tactile feel that something's going on here. Uh, so he went away and washed and came back seeing. So if you break that down, you've got Jesus puts mud on the guy's eye. That sounds like a youth group kind of game that you guys do sometimes, right? Um, I don't want to give Riley too many ideas, you know, right? Number two, the man went to the pool of Siloam to wash, and when he did, he could see, and it wasn't the mud <laughs> that made him better. It was a, a miracle. Uh, there are a lot of ideas about why this is happening. Uh, I can just, to me, uh, we're told that in Genesis that God creates Adam out of the dirt, the dust. It's really better, the clay of the ground. I think you've got Jesus not just fixing the existing structures, I think he's recreating new eyes, ex nihilo, and it's coming out of the clay, as it were. Uh, but that's just my theory. Now, that's the sign. And it took place at the Pool of, pool of Siloam. That's a, a legitimate place. It really existed. It really exists today. You can see the archaeology of it. But it's in the southern part of the city of Jerusalem. Now, let's talk about the significance of the sign. We've seen the sign. Let's look at the significance of the sign. And as we do that, we're going to learn about the essence of saving faith. And we're going to see uh, three things here, Wanda. We're going to see average people interact with the Healy. we got the healer, Nancy, and the Healy. Okay, the healer is Jesus here. The Healy is the blind man born blind. So we got average people, his neighbors, people who had known him prior, interacting with the Healy. Then we're going to have the religious leaders in Jerusalem interact with the Healy, plus his parents. And then we're going to see Jesus interacting with the Healy. Okay. It's not easy for me to say that that many times. I got it. I got it perfect. It's great. Uh, yeah. Let's look at, whoops. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Let me read those to you. Therefore, the neighbors, <laughs> this guy's neighbors, his peeps, you know, and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, 
Is not this the one that used to sit and beg? He looks so much happier. <laughs> he looks different. Yeah. yeah. He, because he's looking now. Of course he looks different. He was blind before, right? Double entendre there. Uh, others were saying, uh, this is he. But still others were saying, no. But he just kind of looks like him. Uh, and he kept trying to convince him, no, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the blind guy that you've known all these years. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And the man answered, the man who is called Yeshua, the man who is called Jesus, made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. Boom. That's what happened. And they said to him, where is he? <laughs> you know, I got aches and pains too. You know, they're thinking, where is this? this guy can fix blindness? Maybe he can fix my aches and pains. And the blind guy who now can see says, I do not know. Uh, the man looked different, but he could be positively identified with those who had known him previously. And my theory, again, is Jesus didn't just fix the existing structure. I think he recreated ex nihilo out of nothing, the eyeball complex, the optic nerve, and the part of the brain that takes that energy and figures out what you're seeing. Your eyes don't see anything. All your eyes do is process light radiation that goes back to your brain. Your brain tells you what you're seeing. It's unbelievable. Darwin said that was one thing I don't think I can explain. The evolution of a human eyeball by small random changes over a long period of time. While that's happening, it doesn't help you. It's got no survival benefit. Uh, anyway, that's a different topic. But yeah, that uh, is the average people are curious and a little confused, but they don't seem to be connecting this as a messianic miracle, a miracle that only the Messiah could do as the rabbis have been teaching. They may be aware of that. They may think of that a little bit more in a minute. Okay, let's go from the average people to the religious leaders interacting with the Healy, right? And we're going to see that most of these religious leaders start with a premise, okay? They start with a premise that Jesus is a bad guy. They start with a premise that you can't heal blindness. Nobody ever did it before. Now, they've been teaching when the Messiah comes, he's going to heal blindness. So Jesus does that, which you might think, They'd have to say, hey, maybe this guy's the Messiah. Maybe we've got to rethink our previous theories. And although there are a couple exceptions to that, these most of these guys have already decided. They're judge, jury, and executioner. The premise is Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. We've had problems with him before. He's a fake healer. But some of them aren't so sure. Nicodemus would be a good example. But look at verse uh, 13 through 16. They, that is the neighbors, uh, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been born blind. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily to cover their tracks. I think they're just curious to see what they're going to say about it because they're, they're the religious experts. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily like, taking him to the secret police to try to get him in trouble, although he does get interrogated very negatively. Now, it was a Sabbath day, Saturday, on the day when Jesus made the claim open his eyes. Uh, and then the Pharisees also were asking him, the Healy, again, about how he received his sight. And he said to them, He, the, the healer, applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Okay? And they're going to say, That's what everybody says is healed from blindness. Why did they not say that? Nobody's ever been healed from blindness. They're not sure what to say. <laughs> you know, how to explain that away. What they're going to say is, He wasn't really blind. Okay? He just pretended to be blind. Okay? Because look what they do here. Um, Therefore, verse 16, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man's not from God, meaning Jesus, the healer. 
Because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Yeah, he keeps the Sabbath perfectly. He doesn't keep the picky extra rules and regulations that the oral law, the rabbis had added to the law. But uh, Jesus is fine. He's, he's the only one who kept the law perfectly. So that's a false indictment. But others, probably Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, a couple of people in the upper echelons of Jewish thinking were open and eventually become believers. But others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner, who's estranged from God, perform such signs? And there, in that setting, they mean a sign that points to him as the Messiah, the Savior we've been waiting for for 2,000 years. And there was a division among them. Now look, uh, they're going to call in the parents to check this out. Now, we don't know how old this man was who was healed, but he he's of age, we're told later. He still lives with his parents. Uh, I think he's probably in his 20s, maybe, as a guess. Uh, Jeff's 35. I don't think he's much older than that. Jeff's 35. I was 35 when I came to Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. Look, what happened? I lost my good looks. You can't believe how much I've sacrificed to help you people. I mean, all the, I got this big heavy study Bible. My arms constantly sore from looking at it around. I mean, there's so much for so many. It's amazing. But, uh, yeah, I want you to picture this as a young adult, maybe in his 20s, something like that. He still lives with his parents because he can't see. He, he wasn't able to do anything but beg and get a little charity that way. So look at uh, verse 17 through 18. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, about the guy who healed you, since he opened your eyes? And the Healy says, He's a prophet. He must be at least a prophet. He must be getting direct power and revelation from God. Otherwise, how could he do such a thing? Um, Notice, this is a good example. The Jews then. John was a Jew. All of the New Testament was written by Jews, with the possible exception of Luke and Acts. Luke may have been a Gentile. But uh, they're not anti-Semitic. When John uses the term the Jews, he's not talking about the dirty Jews, we've got to eliminate all the dirty Jews. He's talking about the Jewish leadership, the Jewish, leaders, uh, Jewish religious leaders. Because all the people in this story are Jews. So he's talking about a subset. When he uses the term the Jews, he's talking about the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders of Judaism at the time. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight. They think this was just sleight of hand, a magic trick, uh, a setup, a ruse, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they questioned them. Now the parents are under the microscope, saying, Is this your son, uh, who you say was born blind? Uh, then how does he now see? You know, he, he had to be the Messiah to, to, to do this, right? His parent answered them and said, uh, we know this is our son. Yeah, check. He's our son. And he was born blind. Check. Yeah, we can we can say that. No doubt about it. But how he now sees, we have no idea. <laughs> you know, don't ask us. You know, don't blame us. You know, Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. Uh, you know, that's still my position, people. When you want to come up to me and tell me what a jerk Tom is, or Katie is, or Jeff is, my first question is, have you talked to Tom? Have you talked to Katie? Have you talked to Jeff? And most of them, no, nah, I don't want to talk to them. I want to tell you how much, how terrible they are. That ain't the way you do it, you know. So they're basically saying, why ask us? You know, we weren't even there, you know, when he got healed. You ask uh, our son. But yeah, he's our son and he was born blind. So 
feel free to quote us on that. Uh, and they're intimidated because they're old enough to know the blind man may have been a little naive, not active in the social circles and the religious circles to the extent that the parents had been. But look at verse 22. Now, the reason a lot of times isn't the real reason. The reason people give for doing X, Y, and Z often isn't the real reason. It's just the least embarrassing excuse or the best cover. So uh, we say, verse 22, his parents said this, just talk to him, don't talk to us, because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue excommunicated, which meant not just from synagogue services, but also from normal social interaction and even being able to go to your average uh, bread store or uh, uh, blacksmith shop and get service. You were pretty much shunned. Uh, you can ask Ron about how certain groups have done that in modern America in certain religious circles, but it's not good. Okay, So they, they realize there's an agenda, an anti-Jesus agenda here, and I'm not sure what they're thinking about Jesus yet, but uh, they realize they've got to be careful what they say and what they say. Uh, verse 23, for this reason his parents said, he's of age, ask him, just deal with him. You know. Now look at verse 24. Uh, so a second time they called the man who had been blind, the Healy, right, we're calling him, and said to him, give glory to God. That means tell the absolute truth, the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, whatever. I can't. How do you say that? We tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yeah, so help me God. Give glory to God. We know. We already have figured out he's a sinner. He can't be the Messiah. That's it. We're not going to accept any data that conflicts with our, you know, any facts that can mess up our theory. We're not going to buy it. He then answered, uh, what, here's the Healy now. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, what's true now, Gene? Now I see. You hear people say, once I was blind, now I see. Uh, and I think for the leaders who've been preaching and teaching the Messiah when he comes, and there was messianic expectation in the first century. They all wanted Rome out of the picture. So they're really looking for the Messiah. This is kind of the ultimate calling card, calling card in the Jewish mind. And is, is God trying to give... Jane, is God trying to give these religious leaders some kind of validation Jesus is the Messiah? Yeah, in spades. they got plenty of information. They just explain it away. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know, but I do know this. Though I was blind, I was born blind. Now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? Just talk more and we can write something down and use it against him at some, some, some level at some point. How did he open your eyes? You know, he's, he's already told them this. And he said, I told you already. And you did not listen. What do you, what do you want to, uh, I say, what do you want to hear it again? And then he says sarcastically, the, the Healy, you don't want to become his disciples, do you? You're wanting all this information about Jesus. You want to become a Christian too? Yeah, why not? And of course, as said tongue in cheek. And they reviled him and said, you're his disciple. And they think that's a bad thing. But we are disciples of Moses. Talking about a false dichotomy. You know, Moses was all about the Messiah. Uh, but they're saying, we're going to choose Moses over uh, Messiah. And that's that's an unnecessary, illogical conclusion. But that's where they are. And quite often we come up with conclusions about things that aren't logical. We know that God has spoken to Moses. And you can read his five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But as for this man, we don't know where he's come from. 
And in fact, the theory they've been floating is that he's a satanically possessed false prophet. But uh, you really can't say stuff like that in the Sanhedrin quarters because that's a holy place, so you don't talk about Satan or use his name in the Sanhedrin quarters. These people are so holy, they're careful about stuff like that, but they'll denigrate and totally reject Jesus to his face. So it's amazing how depraved we can be at our worst. Verse 30, the man answered and said, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes, and you guys are preaching the Messiah can do stuff like that, and only he can. We know that God does not hear sinners, doesn't work through sinners in the sense that prophets and priests and kings, to get God working through them had to be in fellowship with God. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. The uniqueness of this miracle would have been especially significant to the Jewish mind in this context. If this man were from God, he could do nothing like that. When he says he could do nothing, it doesn't mean he could do nothing absolutely, but nothing like that, nothing on this scale, nothing even remotely close to this. They answered him and said, You were born entirely in sins. That's why you were born blind. You were sinning in the womb. You were watching too much TV and playing too many video games, wasting time in the womb, right? Or something. What are you doing? And are you teaching us? You know what? When uh, People always say, uh, people, teachers sometimes say, uh, feel free to ask any questions. And, you know, there is no stupid question and, and, and stuff like that. And I always feel like, don't be afraid of asking dumb questions. Cause I, I like dumb questions because I can answer the dumb ones. You know, it's the more intelligent ones I have trouble with. But, uh, you know, you can learn from a lot of different people. And one thing I learned in seminary was um, there's been a lot of hypercritical studies done on Scripture and Jesus studies and all that stuff. But you can actually read that stuff with a lot of discernment, and you can learn a lot of stuff from Bultmann, you know. Uh, you can learn a lot of stuff from almost any source, much less the perfect source. But these people are totally implacable, totally closed, and it's not because they haven't had enough information. It's because they've rejected and gotten hardened to the information they had been given. Okay. Now, we've seen the average people uh, interact with the Healy, the religious leaders. Now, let's look at the Lord Jesus himself interacting with the Healy. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that... And by the way, I think I skipped that last part of verse 34. Very important. Uh, they answered him, you, you were born blind because you were sinning in the womb. You were born entirely in sins, and you're going to teach us? How dare you? And then it says, so they put him out, and not just out of the chamber. That means out of the synagogue, out of the social system. He's an outcast. He's like a leper, a super leper, socially and spiritually to the religious uh, crowd. Jesus heard that they had put him out. That's that's a black ball and a half. And finding him, the healer, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Exalted title from Daniel for, for the Messiah to be the Savior and ultimately will end history on God's terms in the end times. And he, the Healy answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Uh, we're not saved by random generic faith. We're saved by faith specifically in Jesus Christ. And just believing that God's out there maybe somewhere isn't saving faith. And this guy is totally open. Just the opposite of the spiritually blind religious leaders we've just left. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he's the one who's talking to you now. Now, it's easy to buzz through verse 37 there, Tom, and forget. This guy was born blind. This is the first day out of 20 years plus he can see anything, 
And when he's asking Jesus to identify himself and to kind of ultimately validate himself, he says, Donna, he says, hey, who's the, who's, the, who's the Messiah? You've seen him. You've seen him. You couldn't see a few hours ago. You've seen him. And you can hear him talking to you right now. He's the one talking to you. And look, he's convinced. Look at verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. You're the Messiah. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Savior. You're the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And he worshipped him. Boom. That's that's pretty good. I like that. Uh, the guy's seeing the light, both physically and now spiritually in the fullest sense. Uh, full heart response to Christ. Uh, verse 39. Jesus said, uh, I think, you know, with a sadness in his tongue, for judgment I came to the world. I'm the standard, and those who reject me, who are willfully blind, are going to face the consequences. So that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Who's the, the person he's thinking about specifically when he says, so that those who do not see may see? The Healy, who sees physically and spiritually now, and that those who see physically may become blind. Who's blind to who Jesus is? Even in the face of the miracle they said he's got to do for them. The religious leaders, right? The vast majority of them. Uh, those are the Pharisees who were with him. They're listening in. They're trying to find stuff to use against him. I uh, heard these things and they said to him, we're not of the blind too, are we? You're not talking about us, are you? Nah, you can be talking about us. And Jesus, yeah. Yeah, it's called conviction. Uh, occasionally, James and I both have the experience where we teach the Scripture and we try to apply the Scripture and somebody will get really mad because they think we were talking about something that related to them. I'm guilty. I'm trying to do that. Let me give you my secret agenda. I'm trying to apply this stuff to you all day, every day, every time I teach because I've already applied it to myself and my toes hurt because I've stomped all over my feet. So, of course, I'm trying to make this relevant to where you are. you got you know, a hundred different issues in the room, so I can't talk on each specific issue, but these principles apply to all of us. So, yeah, James and I are both guilty of trying to do that. So, when you think something we said might apply to you, you know, that may make you mad. That makes us very glad. We actually did something here, you know. Uh, Jesus said to them, if you were blind, if you recognized your blindness, your need for a Savior, you would have no sin but because you would respond to me and be forgiven. But since you say we see, how dare you try to teach us? This guy is uh, is a bad guy. Jesus is. He's not the Messiah. He's a false prophet. Your sin remains. Uh, the MacArthur Study Bible has a comment in verse 41. It says, Jesus had particular reference here to the sin of unbelief and rejection of him as Savior. If they knew their lostness, if the religious leaders, the Pharisee types, had recognized, embraced their lostness and darkness, like James Lettuce, and we need you, I need you, I need you, you know. Uh, you, uh, you know, John Lennon and uh, All You Need Is Love, no one can be saved, no one can be saved who can't be saved. You know, he didn't know he was doing theology there. But to be saved, you, you must recognize a need for a savior. So once we've made it politically incorrect to say you're anything less than perfect, uh, you know, I mean, we don't even achieve our own standards at our worst. How in the heck do we think we achieve God's standards perfectly? But Jesus had particular reference to the sin of unbelief and rejection of him as Savior. If they knew their lostness, if they would embrace the fact they're not perfect and they need a Savior, they need the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John the Baptist's words. Uh, 
in their darkness and cried out for spiritual light, they would no longer be guilty of the sin of unbelief in Christ. But satisfied that their darkness was light, that their religious activity and their status with all these degrees they've earned and all this stuff uh, in the Sanhedrin, the pecking order of religious institution that they were associated with, and continuing in their rejection of Christ, their sin remained. Uh, it's pretty cool when you look at this. Uh, Jesus asks a question. Uh, the guy answers honestly. He's clueless, but he's clueless because of lack of information. He hasn't been able to see, hasn't been really in contact with the average social interaction. He's just been begging his whole life. Now he's been healed. He realizes probably mom and dad clued him, and this is a messianic miracle. He asks, who is he? And when Jesus says, I'm it, I'm the one who calls you to see, and I'm the Messiah, he says, I believe. But watch this. Interesting contrast. The Healy who who started the story blind, right, Joe? He was blind from birth. He's clueless spiritually, but he's open. Uh, He's got a lack of information. So when Jesus fills him in, because the guy's got a soft heart spiritually, he was willing and eager to know and believe in the Messiah. He received the light he was given. The religious leaders, on the other hand, were closed due to willful rejection and had become so hardened spiritually they could watch Jesus, as it were, do miracles. They could be living in his time and watch him in and out of Jerusalem. And the light that they were exposed to only hardened them. The same sunlight that can soften certain types of clay only hardens others. And so this idea that if you know if everybody saw miracles, they believe in Jesus, just isn't true because uh, Exhibit A would be these religious leaders. They've seen and or heard about them. They have no doubt the miracles happen but they explain them away, right? Okay, let's close here. Uh, if you ask most people who are fairly familiar with the Gospel of John, and by the way, you know what? Maxine, Maxine gave me something today, which is the best gift I've gotten in a long time. Maxine, Maxine, I'm about to use the laser pointer here. Yeah, okay. Let's have a round of applause since we're singing happy birthday multiple times. <laughs> I've got a laser pointer that works. If I remembered I had it, I would have pointed out the pool of Siloam. But if that's Jerusalem, Siloam's down there. Just so you know. But yeah, I've got one now. If I don't lose it this week or break it, we'll be in good shape. But if you ask the average person who's kind of familiar with the Gospel of John, what happens in John chapter 9? David, who's pretty familiar with that, he'd say, well, that's the healing of the, of the man born blind. That's what happens in, in John chapter 9. And I would say, yeah, but the real center of John chapter 9 is not the one person's physical blindness at the beginning of that day. The real center of this chapter is the many religious leaders who willfully remain spiritually blind at the end of the day. Now, the real reason that the vast majority of people in Israel in Jesus' day, including 98%, that's a a guess, guesstimate, of the religious leaders, The reason they rejected Jesus wasn't due to lack of opportunity, absence of information, absence of validation. It was a matter of hardened hearts. Uh, And that's always been true. And it's true today. If God gives light, even if it's fairly general light, to people and they reject it and abuse it and belittle it and explain it away, he's not necessarily under obligation to give you more light that's only going to make you harder. Because you see what happens when you get light, 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 light against this rejection you get to where the Sanhedrin is, where they're willing to physically have Jesus killed. That's how bad it can get. Uh, 
but it's always a matter of uh, spiritual dynamics. It's our heart, not our head. Uh, and by the way, I thought it would be interesting to note here, this isn't a secular group of thinkers against spiritual thinkers, religious thinkers. These are religious people rejecting Jesus because they choose their own goodness over God's grace. They literally think they're so good, God owes them heaven, and they don't need a Messiah, certainly not one like Jesus. Uh, with that in mind, you read a passage like John 1, which is talking about Jesus. He was in the world, and the world had been made through him, yet the world did not know him. Just generally, most of the people he interacted with didn't receive him. He came into his own, the Jewish people, the people who had given, been given the promises directly to the covenants from God. And those who were his own, by and large, many individual exceptions, but the vast majority did not receive him. But, and this is such a beautiful statement of Scripture, John 1.12, as many as received him. That can be you if you've never done that before. Lord, I receive you. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. You can, and I want you to. I believe you died for my sins and rose again. I trust in you. But as many as received him, little boys, little girls, white people, black people, regardless of your cultural background, country, color, doesn't matter. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So saving faith in Christ is not a matter of intelligence, <clears throat> social socioeconomic status, color, country, or culture. It's a matter of a person's heart, their mind, and their will. Now watch this, and I'm going to close. Saving faith, Riley, is something a little child can do, can, can express. Jesus uses little children as the example of act, people willing to do active, receptive trust. On the other hand... Saving faith is something a murderous criminal. The thief on the cross wasn't a thief, he was a terrorist. The Romans didn't crucify thieves, they crucified terrorists. The terrorists on the cross also can express saving faith. And yet, the reality is many very intelligent people, many very religious, otherwise religious people, offended by the claims of Christ and or their need for him to save them, are incapable of expressing saving faith precisely because they refuse to humbly receive salvation as a gift for those unable to receive it based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. So I would say, let's believe it, let's live it, and yet share it. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the grace of God that works in your program from start to finish, and particularly in the program of salvation. We thank you for the grace provision of a Savior the perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's done all the work, all the effort, who's compiled all the merit necessary to get any human being from earth to heaven. We thank you for the gracious terms of salvation. Simple faith. Faith is a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. As one theologian said, it's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ. And so help us who have embraced the saving Christ through your uh, your grace and received salvation. Help us to be more gracious to those around us and help us to be more consistent in the way we live this out so we can live it and share it with others. For anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, embrace Jesus as Savior. Open their eyes. Give them, as they come to your light, a full spiritual sight by seeing and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.